just talks amongst yourself while I adjust this, because it's... Yeah, things sorted now. Good morning. How are we all today? Oh, good. Some of us are good. Good. <laughs> it's the new year. Beginning of January. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Saroosh. As Raj has already said, you're welcome here. It's great to have you. We're delighted that you've been able to join us today. Um, hope you've all had a nice Christmas and New Year. Usually, um, at the beginning of the New Year, you hear people talking about New Year resolutions. Um, I, well, the first time I heard it, when, uh, it was uh, about 10 years ago when we first came into this country, and after New Year, people were talking about New Year resolutions, and that was a new concept to us. Um, and it was amazing uh, what sort of resolutions some people had. I'm not going to uh, bring examples, but how many of you had New Year resolutions? Uh, one, two, three, four. Uh, I think there's more than that, but yeah. <laughs> um, my New Year resolution was to eat less rice and kebab and chicken. <laughs> but it only lasted till lunchtime on the same day, so that's gone. Uh, for those of us who've had New Year resolutions in the past few years, um, you know that some of them don't really last long. Because it's just the nature of New Year resolutions. It, you just decide to do something and you give up after a while. Sometimes you just give up after a few hours, like me, or sometimes you give up after a few weeks. But as Eyub said uh, this morning, today, uh, this year, is the year that we want to shine for Jesus. Let this be what you focus on this year. Let this be your prayers every day. Not like a New Year resolution, because you'll give up anyway after a few days or weeks. But let this be the focus of your prayers. Ask God to bless you, and with His grace, let you and I, as a church, shine for Him. Because this is what we're called as a church. We're called to shine. We call to shine in the darkness. We call to shine in Teesside and in the nations. This is who we are as a church. We're not just a group of people together, hanging around on a Sunday. It's great, and I love it when we worship together. Like this morning was amazing. In unity, we praise God, we dance for Him, we shout out. But there's more than that. Jesus has called us to be people who are different, who shine for Him. So let let this be your New Year resolution. I'm just going to take my watch off and put it here. Some, uh, I used to wonder why do people take their watches off when they preach? Because, uh, but then I thought uh, I found out after I asked somebody that it was more than an item of jewelry. It tells you the time. <laughs> so I'm just going to do the same. I'm going to have it here so I can keep track of timing. Just before we move on to uh, unpacking the scripture. Uh, I just feel, uh, uh, I have a word for some of you here. I just feel that God says there are people here who've been hurt and wounded by words uh, in the past. Uh, there are particular people who've been hurt by words uh, in their childhood. There's one particular uh, lady that I feel uh, has been hurt, uh, has been abused by words uh, when she was a child. And as she grew up, uh, the wounds were still there, and she thought, well, I'm an adult now, I'm, I'm not a child, so I can defend myself. But then it carried on again as you moved on into your family. The, these 
abusive words carried on coming. But I feel that God wants to bring an end to it. Uh, I feel that God wants to heal you today. Uh, if it's you, um, please uh, come forward at the end so that we can pray for you. Because Jesus has the power to heal. He healed when he was walking on earth in his ministry, and he heals today. And as a church, we believe that he does heal today. I personally have seen it many times. But if uh, you feel that this word was for you, please come forward at the end so that we can pray for you. All right, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, you will know that I've heard that we're um, preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, Raj fantastically brought the fifth chapter to an end. It was amazing, wasn't it? Um, it was just great. I felt so encouraged by it. Um, so the fifth chapter, it came to an end last week. Um, and this week, we're going to start chapter six. The words will be projected on the screen. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll start unpacking them. Uh, it's Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and is in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from them. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is amazing. Again, Jesus doing extraordinary stuff. This time in his hometown. Uh, we, the author of the gospel here doesn't tell us the, specifically his hometown, but Luke tells us that it's Nazareth. And we all know Jesus is known as the Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he grew up. That's his hometown. He's gone back, and you usually expect a welcome when you go back to your hometown, when you haven't been there for a while, at least from your family if not neighbors or the community. My mother-in-law always tells me that uh, when one day we are able to go back home, she tells me what her plans are. She wants to close the whole street. She just wants to close it, and it's possible in Iran. You can do that. So she just closed it, yeah, closed it so no cars pass by, and then she's going to decorate it with lights and all the different stuff that you can find. She's going to have a feast, obviously, Lots of food. She's going to invite the whole family and the community around. And she wants to feed people until the morning. 
She wants to feed people and let them eat and dance until the morning. And she does, she's not joking. I, I know what it's like. Uh, I know her too well. And seriously, if one day, and when one day, by God's grace, I am able to go back home, this is what's going to happen. And I'm sure this is how, how it will be. So the scale of it is just enormous. And this is the sort of thing that you would get, particularly if you're from a culture like Jesus, Jesus' culture, uh, from those sort of areas. And even here, when you go back home, you expect a warm welcome. What does Jesus get? Not even a handshake. There's no banner to say, welcome back home, there's nothing for him. They even take offense at him. He goes back home after a while. He's done all these miraculous things. The news has spread throughout. Everybody knows who he is. Well, almost. They know him. They know what he's done. They know that he's healed the sick. He's performed miracles. This great guy from Nazareth has come back. And they don't even welcome him. And his disciples followed him there as well, just like everywhere else. So they were with him. We are his disciples. We should follow him everywhere. Everywhere. We should just go. Let him lead the way. Just go with him. Trust in him. Because we know that even if we walk through the shadow of the valley of death, he is with us. His disciples were with him physically and they were following him. Let us follow him as his disciples. Because we are his disciples, we are his sons and daughters. We want to follow him with all we have. With the tradition of the day, he enters the synagogue, he picks up a scroll, reads it, and he probably unpacks the scripture as well because people are astonished. Some of them are saying, wow, listen to this great teacher. Isn't it great? He's not like our normal uh, priest. He's not, he has some authority with him. He has something different. People are astonished at his teachings, and then they start questioning him. Where did you get this power from? How, how are you doing this sort of stuff? Teach us. Tell us how you do it so that we can do it as well. How do you do this? Um, in verses 2 and 3, they're saying, how did you do it? What's the wisdom given to him? So they obviously know that he has wisdom that is above their understanding. That's beyond their understanding. The wisdom is different. It's not worldly wisdom. And they start reminding themselves of who he is. They start saying, oh, is he not the brother of James? Is he not brother of Simon? We know his sisters. We know his mother. Is he not the carpenter? The guy who had a shop around the corner. And now he's telling us all this sort of stuff. And they're offended. They're offended that this guy that they know is teaching them really well. They're asking Jesus, who are you? Where do you get this? Well, the answer is, he's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Listen to his words and obey it. Hear him instead of criticizing him. But they start criticizing. They start saying, where does he get it from? If Jesus had a CV at that time, he could carry it with him. They could take a look at it and they would know who he is. The creator of the world. The creator of the world is there teaching them. But they're so ignorant. They just don't want to listen. They're so ignorant. They think they know him. 
they think they're familiar with him. They think that they know his whole family. It's not the only instant where people around Jesus don't recognize him. In John 8, 58, uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what do people do when he says that? Because they truly understand what it means. If somebody had said that, they would know it. They're Jews, they're familiar with the scripture, and they know they're waiting for the moment that somebody comes and tells them this exact phrase. But what do they do? They pick up stones and they want to throw stones at him. This is the sort of welcome he gets. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He's telling them, I am God. I am the creator. Before your father, Abraham, that you take pride in him, was, I am. He's introducing himself the way that Jehovah introduced himself. But they don't want to listen to him because this guy is so normal. This guy is just the carpenter they know. This guy is just a normal guy. He doesn't even look great. They don't want to believe in him. The reaction they get, that Jesus gets, is so different. When they hear this word, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, what they should do is really fall down on their knees and worship him. But instead, they pick up stones. And apparently there were lots of stones around. So they're offended because a normal guy, a typical guy comes and tells them that he is the Messiah. They couldn't find fault in him. All they could see was the glory of God. As Jesus moves, the glory of God moves. As he moves, people are healed. As we heard last week, a woman came and touched Jesus, and she was healed. So people were touching him. They wanted to be around him, but nothing more than that, just to receive the healing and blessing and anything else that he had. I didn't want to listen to him further than that. This is religion. This is religion. This is against the grace of God. They're offended that some carpenter guy is claiming to be God, the God of their fathers, their God. How could this be possible? We're good people. We're descendants of a godly man, Abraham. We go to synagogue every Saturday. We read the scripture. We listen to the scripture being read, and we try to keep it. And you're telling us all we get is you, the carpenter guy, as our king? You're joking, aren't you? So they're offended because they have this conception of a king who comes, is so different from everyone else, so powerful, this muscly guy, comes, destroys the Roman Empire, gets all the Jews together and tells them, you are the best. But Jesus does exactly the opposite. He comes and tells them, I know where your heart is. You want to see my healing, but you don't want to listen to my words. You come with me because you know at the end you're going to get something. If not healing, then some food. He fed 5,000 people. He surely can feed some more. So people go, before, go after him to get some, something out of him, but not to give anything. 
Jesus doesn't want much. He just wants their hearts. And he knows where their heart is. He knows that when they question him, it's out of their ignorance. In their hearts, they know the scripture. They know what it says about the Messiah. They know they've been given signs of who he is, but they don't want to believe it. It's the familiarity that's the problem. Because the grass is always greener on the other side. People of Nazareth, those who should have really known Jesus, didn't know him. Because some of them said, is it not Jesus, the guy who smashed our window when he was playing football the other day, when he was young? Did he not play with our John? Did he not go to school without Liam? Did he not grow with, with us? He grew up here in this town. How could he be the Messiah? Impossible. They thought they're familiar with him. They thought they know him. But they didn't know him at all. Just like Raj said last week, some of us might be giving all that we have to him, but we don't really have a relationship with him. The relationship with Jesus is the first thing we want. Because out of that relationship, everything else grows. You want to be in relationship with him. You want to know him as your saviour, personally. And the people of Nazareth didn't have that. We can be the same. We can be stubborn at heart. We can question the works of the creator of the heaven and the earth. If you do that, it's probably because you don't know him. You think you're familiar with him, but you're not really. You don't know him well. Because otherwise, all you would have done is to worship him. If you don't know him, then get to know him. I recommend you. He's the best friend you can ever find. He's the, the savior of the world. Get to know him. He wants to get to know you. He wants to be your friend. He wants to eat with you. What people of Nazareth should have done with him, invite him to a feast so that they could eat together, so that they could be a community, a real community, a community where they know one another, they know each other's hearts, not just living next door to each other without knowing one another. This is what he wants to do with you. If you don't know him, he wants to come and meet with you. He wants to be your friend. You will fall in love with him once you know him. He'll take you on a wonderful journey. Rejection is a reflection of our hearts. So if people of Nazareth rejected Jesus, it tells us, and of course Jesus knew what was in their hearts, but it tells us what's in their hearts. <coughs> Jesus says that your mouth speaks of your heart. So the rejection of authority is what we often hear as well in the churches. The rejection reflects your heart. So if you're rejecting the spiritual authority, then you're really rejecting the author of that authority. You're rejecting the person who gave that authority. So by rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting Father God. What does Jesus say to their unbelief? He talks about honor, something really, really important in that culture and still very important. Honoring is really important. We read in the Bible, um, honor one another, honor your God, but honor is a totally different context. It's so huge. Sometimes even talking about it, it's just so difficult. Shame and honor are really important. 
uh, Jesus tells them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So he's telling them that, well, I know it because no prophet was honored in his household. Look at the life of Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. Was he honored? Not really. What happens to Jesus now? He's telling them, I knew this. Now, there's a difference between prophets and priests in that time. In the time of Jesus, prophets were people that were chosen by God, and they had the Spirit of God on them, and they, they were speaking on behalf of God. So God was telling, giving them words so that they could give to the nation. They could give this to the people. Whereas priests were coming from a certain lineage, had to be born in a certain family, so everybody knew that this guy would be a priest when he grows up. So this is the difference. But whereas prophets were chosen by God, they didn't have to come from a particular family, they didn't have to have certain lineage, they were just chosen by God, and the Spirit of God was on them. They were anointed. So Jesus tells them, um, you might think I'm not from a particular family, you might think I'm a carpenter, you might think you know my brothers and sisters, you might think you know Mary, but I'm really not who you think I am. He is God who came into human history as a man. He came to teach and preach and to prophesy. His ministry was to teach and preach. He came to heal the sick. And prophets were very often rejected by people, just like Jesus says here, unsurprisingly, because what they said was, people, you're in sin. You're against God. Repent, come with me, and I'll show you the way. And of course, people don't like it because they don't like being criticized. They don't like hearing the word, you're in sin. So they oppose the prophet. They go against him and say, no, you are lying. You're not a prophet, really. Uh, we are the people of God. Our father is Abraham. We are the chosen one. So you are wrong. We're not going to listen to you. So you are rejected. This is what happened very often. If you're a Christian and you were born in a non-Christian family, you probably know that the first people who oppose you when you come to Christ are your family. I've got lots and lots of stories to tell you about this, but we don't have time for it, really. But when I was in Turkey, uh, when we went in April last year with uh, Paul and Jean, uh, we met lots of people, uh, and I, I met this guy. Uh, I'd met him before, so we had a chat, we were speaking uh, together, and then uh, he was telling me about the difficulties uh, of being a Christian, becoming a Christian, uh, and then he said that he was beaten by his brothers and father when they found out that he had come to Christ. Um, so that's definitely not honor. But this is what you get in some part of the world. <laughs> this is what you get. When they picked up stones to throw at Jesus, they weren't joking. This is what they would do because they think they're honoring God. They think they're often, that their God has been offended. And they would really do it. Brothers will beat brothers. Even fathers will beat their children because they come to Christ. It might not be the case in this country. Uh, thank God for some laws in this country. 
Um, but you will get opposition from your family. You probably have been in this situation. But what I want to encourage you is to pray for your family so that they can accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as you have. Because it's not impossible. You won't believe the number of people that I spoke to when I was back home. They came to Christ, and then they were so scared that their family would find out. They were so scared that their family would find out that they're Christians. You wouldn't believe what would happen. But then, they would come and ask me for another Bible. I thought, well, they've lost their Bible, or they don't know where they've put it last time. But no, they wanted it for their mom and dad. And that was amazing. And then you would hear the whole family would come to Christ. We have faith. Our God is great. He's powerful. Nothing is impossible for Him. He is the creator of the heaven and earth. So if your family is not a Christian, are not Christian yet, pray for them. Pray that the light of God would shine on them, that their heart is softened so that they can see, they can have revelations of God so that they can kneel down and shout out that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Do it from today if you haven't. This is what I'm doing. After many, many years, I still have faith. And I keep doing it. Perseverance is a biblical thing sometimes. It's good to persevere. Now, we read later on that he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was marveled for their unbelief, and he went about the villages teaching. Now, they dishonored Jesus. That's, that's just impossible. And now, we read that he couldn't do mighty works. I think it, the, the author of, of the gospel is on, uh, is a, it, he's a bit of understatement. He could do no mighty works. Well, I can understand it because he's been around, he's heard about all these healings, he's seen healings, he's seen miracles, and then a few sick people being healed is really not much of a deal. So he says, mm, he couldn't do no mighty works except a few sick people. Well, I really pray that there would be the day that we as a church think that mm, healing a few sick, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just an mm, everyday thing. Ah, well, yeah. The guy with the cancer, yeah, I know. Uh, he was healed. Not much of a big deal. You know. uh, paralytic guy who couldn't walk, oh, he's healed. Ah, well, not a big deal. It's just a few things that God does. I really pray that there will be the day where we can talk about healings like this. And to do that, we can't just sit and say, yes, the day will come. What we need to do is, we need to go and follow Jesus as his disciples were. We need to watch and observe, because this is what disciples do. They watch. They take great care. They observe. And then, do the same things. Not with our strength, not with our wisdom, because we won't get anywhere, but with his strength and wisdom, and for his glory. So, when you enter your workplace, when you go to your workplace, when you go to university, when you go to colleges, next time you see a person who is sick, who is unwell, instead of just showing it sympathy, what you can do is lay hands on them, 
pray in Jesus' name and pray for the Spirit of God to come upon them and pray so that you can see healing for one reason, for God's glory, so that he can be glorified, so that people can see signs and wonders and they can ask, who has done it? How did you do it? Then you can tell them how. You can introduce them to the Lord of Lords, to the King of Kings, to the Creator of heaven and earth, and they can have a relationship with Him. So as a church, we need to be hands-on. And at the end, hopefully we'll have some time to pray for the sake. We'll have time to minister to one another. So if you need healing, this is the time. Today, we're going to pray. And it's God who will heal, and it's God who gets all the glory, who receives all the glory, because He's the only one who's worthy of all this glory. He's the only one that we should worship. Now, the theology of that people is based on what they want it to be based on. But our theology should be based on the Bible, because the Bible is the truth. It's the Word of God. And it's against the Bible that we measure everything. We can't bring our own theology and say, okay, let's find it within the Bible. But our theology should be picked up from here. If we do that, we will be like the people of Nazareth. Their theology was, oh, we control God. We tell him what to do. We tell him what to be like. We want a God who's different. We want a God who comes in a different format. We want a God who's different, when he comes, there will be total silence, that the Romans would be destroyed. We want him to be like that. He can't tell us what he wants to do. But it's God who's in control. If you're trying to take control, you're trying to be God. And it's a very bad thing. <laughs> I certainly recommend you not to do that. It's God who's in control. It's he who tells us where to go. It's he who goes before us and prepares the way for us not us. We can't tell God to come and follow us. We are human beings. Until Jesus was performing miracles, until he was healing people, they were okay with it. They were fine. They were actually bringing their friends, they were bringing their family who needed to be healed to him. But as soon as Jesus opened his mouth, and told them who he really is, and told them words from the scripture, as soon as he started teaching them, then that's where it all went wrong for them. There are many people in the world today, they respect Jesus as a great teacher. They really have respect for him. They think he was an amazing guy, and he is a great teacher. In fact, he's the greatest teacher ever in the whole history. Find a teacher who's better than him, you can't, because he's the greatest. There are people who respect him as a prophet. Well, he was. He clearly says that here. There are people who respect him as a good guy, as a guy who had compassion for his people. Yes, he, he does have compassion for us, but above that, he is God. And now, try telling that to people who think of him as a prophet, as a good guy, as a great teacher, and they'll probably pick up stones to throw at you. Because this is where they can't handle it. 
it's fine, a good teacher we can handle. It's fine, some good guy who has compassion, somebody who actually heals. Yeah, it's fine, we'll have it. God, no. We want to tell him what it should be like. He's our savior. He's not just the greatest teacher ever. He's just not somebody who has compassion for us. He is our Lord and Savior. That's why we are together here in unity, worshiping Him. Because He did it all so that we can be here today, as Paul said and read from the scripture, from many different nations and backgrounds and tongues and languages, worshiping Him. Without Him, it would have been impossible. Without Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we'd just be some people who might not even know each other. But it's because of Him in the center. It's because of Him as our Savior that we are together. He's not just the greatest teacher for us. He's not just some guy who has compassion for us. He's our God. He is the only one we worship as a church. And that's what keeps us going. People of Nazareth were in a different category. They were in the category of those who wanted Him as a healer, as a teacher, but not God. Now, when Jesus goes into Nazareth, some people are around there probably thinking, hmm, this guy's come, now he's back, it's the moment. They go to Jesus and tell him, look, you're from Nazareth, you know us too well. You know we're poor people, you know nobody really cares about us here. You're from here, you're allowed to, be, to show a bit of favoritism, you can do a bit of favor here. What you can do is, we tell you what to do. We don't have anyone famous in Nazareth, but now we produce a superstar, Jesus. Now, you're going to sit down here. We're going to go around and tell people we've got a great guy here. They're going to decide to come to Nazareth to see you. We charge them a visa entry. That's a bit of money. Then they've got to make an appointment with you. Obviously, have to pay for that. There's more money. They will come to you. You will heal them. Then you do some more, some more stuff to entertain them while they're here. We become rich, and that's it. We don't have to work. Nazareth will become famous. We're not just a bunch of people who nobody cares about. We'll be famous. Now, this is what you should do. But then Jesus comes, and he just heals a few sick people. You know what? Because he knew their hearts. He knew that if he would do anything more than that, they would go around and do exactly this. They would go around and, and say, look, we've got a guy. He's just perfect. Greatest teacher ever. Come to him. He even heals. You need healing? Come to me. Uh, yeah, it'll be about 200 denarius or something. Uh, maybe another 100 for my, uh, if you need an earlier appointment. It's typical in, the, in those parts of the world. Uh, I'm very familiar with it. Um, another hundred if you need to see him privately. And then, yeah, you get to see him. But why would they do it for their own sake? They wouldn't do it for God's glory. They want to do it so that they don't have to work. They can earn money. They'll be famous. And Jesus does all the things. But as soon as he tells them he's God, they know that uh, there's something wrong. If he says that somewhere else, they'll be in trouble. If he claims to be the king over them, then there is something wrong. Because they can't be in control. Then they're not going to get the money. They're not going to get all the praise and worship. Jesus is going to get them all. So they take offense at him. Say, how could you do that to us? As a church, we want to see the sick healed. We want to see it for God's glory. We don't want to be like the people of Nazareth 
who want to control God, but we want him to be in control, and we want him to take us in this wonderful journey, as he already has. And you know what? There is more to come. It just gets more interesting and interesting. As you walk with him, he's so adventurous. We're entering a new season as a church, and I really look forward to it. I just look forward to it, not because I know what's going to happen, no, but because I know there is more to it. I know that God is in control, I'm excited for him, and I'm excited to receive all that he has for us as a church. Now Jesus calls his disciples, he tells them, come here, the twelve of them. Uh, He even calls them by name in Mark 3, so he knows them really well. That tells us something about relationship, that tells us something about community. He knows them well. He's been living with them. He's been eating with them. He even slept in the same place with them. And he's been taking them on this wonderful journey. They've seen lots and lots. They should know him better than anyone else. So he calls his disciples and tells them, come here. He doesn't call them so that he can hold on to them. He calls them so that he can send them. He says, come here. Now go and do what you saw. He tells them, I will give you my authority... <laughs> my authority so that you can go and do this, the things that I did. It's a mission with Jesus. It's not an optional extra. I've never bought a new car, but I've heard that when you buy a car, you can choose whether to have your windows pulled down mechanically or electronically. Uh, you can have extra options. You can have different things added to your car. Uh, You will have options. You can choose. When you come in the kingdom, into the kingdom of God, it's not an optional extra. This is something that we're called to. When you come into his kingdom, you're so excited that you can't just keep it to yourself. If you can, and if you manage to keep it to yourself, there's something wrong. Because usually people want to go around and tell other people. If you want to keep it to yourself... Is selfishness. A free gift, freely received, give it for free. It's a mission that we're called to. Jesus calls us as his disciples, not just the twelve, calls us as a church to him, not just so that he can hold on to us, he calls us so that he can send us. We are a people on mission. He's sending them with authority, the authority that's been given to him, We read that Jesus tells them, I will make you the fisher of men, when he calls two of his disciples. They're fishing with their nets in the sea. Jesus calls them and tells them, come here, I want to make you the fisher of men. In Jeremiah 16, God directly says the same thing. So Jesus again is telling his disciples who he really is. He's quoting from Jeremiah, the Old Testament, And he's saying that directly. He says, I will do it. He's making it known to them that he is God. Now he gives them some other commandments. The Bible says he charges them. I think it's a word for commanding them. He's telling them imperatively. He's telling them, take no bread, no money in your belts, I don't think they had purses or wallets in those times. 
for their money. They didn't have credit cards or those sort of things. But it says, no money in your belt, no bread, only take your stuff. Now, the context is really important here. People used to have stuff with them in those times for various reasons. Shepherds had it so that they can take care of their flock, uh, so that they could get the wolves away. Jesus is telling them, just take his stuff with you. Don't take bread or money or anything else. He's not literally telling them, don't take bread. So if they had a piece of bread in, in their pocket, they'd be wrong. No, he's telling them, prioritize. When you go away, when you are being sent for God, there is one thing that should be in your mind, the first thing ever, that you are going for God, that He is sending you. So don't worry about anything else. Get your priorities right. Put Him in the first place ever, and everything else will be sorted. Jesus says, seek the kingdom, and the rest will be given. So it's the matter of priority, whether your money or your food is more important. They didn't have Burger Kings in M1 services those times, so they did have to take some bread or some money with them to buy some stuff. But Jesus is telling them, when you are sent, don't worry about this sort of stuff. Because if I am sending you, then I will provide for you. If I'm sending you, then did you not see me feeding 5,000 people? Can I not do the same thing again? There is a cost to following Jesus. The cost is that he will be the first thing ever. He will be the top priority. If we can give up anything that is the first thing in your life and put Jesus there, that would be great. Can you think of a few things in your mind that are above him in your life? If there are, repent. Give it to him and tell him, you're not in the first place, but I want you to be there, so take your rightful place now. Let him be the first thing in your mind. If you are sent, if you are going for him, if you are going for ministry, let him be the first thing that you think about. It's about loyalty to God. It's about loyalty to his kingdom, not anything else. He's telling them, don't take no tunics with you. He doesn't want him, his disciples, to be different from other people. He doesn't want them to look different. He wants them to be different in their hearts. And he tells them, when you go to the house, and if they receive you, stay there until you go. Now, usually, this sort of travels are long. When you go somewhere, particularly in those times, you stay at least for a few weeks. Even now, if you ask our international friends who are living here and have their moms and dads or families around, ask them, when do they leave? They won't know. <laughs> because it's rude to ask, when do you leave? So, and it's usually as long as they have a visa to stay here. So if it's six months, they will stay until the last day. Because it's important to spend time together. It's important for them to be together as a family. It's usually the longest they can stay. So if, it, if they get a two-year visa, then they usually stay two years. Uh, and then 
even then you won't know when they leave. Yeah, it's, it's really rude to ask for their ticket and see when is it that you leave? Even for your own planning. So you won't usually do that. And it's the same with Jesus' disciples. They go into a, a town, they're walking into a town, they've come from a long way. People see them, they're very hospitable. They say, oh, you're strangers, you don't, you're not from here. Oh, you must be uh, tired and hungry. Come to my house. They will go there and they will tell them why they're here because people, are usually, people usually ask you, why are you here? They try to find out everything about you. Uh, why are you here? We're here because Jesus has sent us. Who's Jesus? This, he's Jesus. This is Jesus. And do you want to know him more? They start telling them who Jesus is and if they don't kick them out, if they're not offended, then they can stay there for the duration of their stay, which usually is unknown. So Jesus is telling them, when you go to a house, stay there. Don't move about. Stay there. Why? Because you can create friendship. Because you can create community. Because it's important to get to know people. It's important that people can trust in you. And they can trust in you when they know you. They can't just trust in you if they don't know you as a stranger, even if you, particularly if you're not from that particular area. So Jesus is telling them, wherever you go, if people accept you, create a community. Create a family. A family that has the name of Jesus Christ above it. Create a community that loves one another and also loves their neighbor. That's why Jesus is telling them, don't move about. It's not about one particular style. It's not about how they want to do it, whether they want to eat on a table or they eat on the ground or whether they will have people in a certain time of day. It's about the community. It's about having them around. It's about making that community. It's about making, making it known to the people there that we are a family and we are a family because Jesus Christ has called us to be a family, a community together. This is in contrast with uh, Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, we read that Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets, uh, goes into a different town and there's a widow who accepts him and tells him, you can come and stay with me. We don't know how long Elijah stayed there. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure whether the scripture tells us how long he stayed there. But he stayed there and that poor widow, who was really poor, didn't know when he would leave. But he stayed there to make a statement. He stayed there so that they can get to know one another. He stayed there so that would be the community for God. And he stayed there, and because of that, God poured out his blessing on that household, gave them food, more than they could imagine. And then because he stayed there, God raised a dead. That widow's son died, and because of Elijah, Elijah, because Elijah had stayed there, God told him to go raise him up in my name. And he did. Imagine if Elijah had gone there saying, mm, I've got a few plans, I'm going to stay here for three days, I'm going to go there then, and then I'm going to come back. How would that poor widow got to know him? Creation of the community means that you've got to stay with people, you've got to befriend them, you've got to get to know one another. And that really takes time. The widow was the lowest in the community. She had no husband, really bad in those uh, times, of, and particularly in that society, meaning she had no income, 
She only had one son. The only thing that would keep her going. And then he suddenly died. But then, Elijah is obedient to God. And God tells him to go and raise his son. However, Jesus says, if they don't accept you, if they don't listen to what you have for them, shake off the dust of your feet. It's still very common um, in the Middle East to do that. So if you, you, if you use this expression and say, I'm going to shake off the dust of my feet, it means I've got nothing to do with you. I'm not going to come back here ever. That's the, one of the worst things you can ever say to somebody. So it means we're not going to see one another ever again until I'm alive. Um, and Jesus tells them to do this if they don't accept them. It means that if they're not accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then they're going to be separated eternally. Remind them. Tell them again who I am. Tell them what I really have for them. Tell them what it really means to live with me. What it really means to be my sons and daughters. Rabbis, uh, in those times had to shake off the dust of their feet. Whenever they traveled to a Gentile land and they wanted to come back into Israel, they had to shake off the dust of their feet so that they wouldn't bring that into the Holy Land. This is what Jesus is telling them. Now, this is uh, probably a bit hard to understand, particularly if you have a Western mindset uh, or if you've been living in the West for a long time uh, because liberal ideas are the best usually. We can accept liberal ideas. It's willy and it, it, yeah, it sounds good. Uh, we will accept that. But anything that's a bit extraordinary, um, not sure really. Uh, it's easy to criticize anything that's not liberal. Jesus is the king. We don't live in a democracy in the kingdom of God. We have a kingdom. We have a king who's above all. And doesn't matter what culture we come from, he is our king, and he is in control, and we are his people. If you believe in him as your Lord and Savior, then you don't have to vote for anything because you have the perfection. We will have it one day together, but we can bring that perfection onto the earth. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. We don't pray for his democracy to come. We don't pray for his liberal ideas to come. We pray for his kingdom to come to the earth because it's perfection. There is nothing, nothing lacking in his kingdom. And you know, when you pray for the sick to be healed, that's praying for the kingdom to come. Because in his kingdom, there is no illness. In his kingdom, there is no tears. In his kingdom, there is no lack of anything. So let's put our ideas to one side. Let's put what we feel comfortable with to one side. And let's get, listen to the words of Jesus. Even if what he says sounds a bit radical, that's typical of Jesus. He steers things up sometimes because the way he thinks is different. But we trust in him. He's all-powerful. He, he's all-knowing. He's the Savior. I think it's time for us to pray <laughs> together. Now, I think it would be good to, for people to come forward to be prayed for. If you'd like to be prayed for, if you're unwell, if you need healing, if you want the King of Kings 
to heal you, I want to encourage you to come forward so that we can pray for you. We will pray in Jesus' name, and we want to see healing for his name. We want to see healing for his glory. And also the word that I brought at the beginning, if it's you, please come forward so that we can pray for you. Because there is power in the name of Jesus. Words do have power. Sometimes they can be destructive. But the power that is in the name of Jesus is above everything else. So if it's you, I want to encourage you to come forward so that God can break the chains. He, I want him to bring restoration. So if I could ask the band to come up, please. And then if you need to be prayed for, if you'd like to be prayed for, please come forward. The ministry team, if I could ask you to be ready as well, if you have people to be prayed for. Um, men with men, women with women, please. Should we all stand up together? Please do, you know, we're not, there's not going to be some holy gap. Come now, come forward. We'll prep you right from the beginning. Ministry team, come forward, please. Let's pray for these guys. Praise the Lord. 